Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams podcast. My guest this week is Ottavio Tavi Costa of Crescat Capital. Tavi and his partner, Kevin Smith, have become two of the most respected voices in the precious metal space. And they blend a remarkably keen macro understanding with what is, as you'll hear, an extraordinarily robust due diligence process surrounding one of the trickiest sectors uh, in which to invest, that's junior mining and exploration companies. Tavi's background growing up in Brazil gives him, I think, a huge advantage over many other actors in this space. So I'm hugely looking forward to picking his brains about both the macro environment in which we find ourselves and the junior mining sector, which he and Crescat now call home. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Tavi Costa. Tavi, look, thanks uh, thanks for joining me. We had to put this off a week for various reasons, but uh, I'm so glad we're together now, and, and thanks for taking the time. Well, it's my pleasure. There's so many things I want to talk to you about, and this is I make, I make no bones about it. This episode of the podcast is going to end up talking a lot about gold and gold mining stocks, which is a, a particular source of your expertise. But what I'd love to do before we get to that, there's a couple of things I'd love to do. First of all, uh, I'd love to start off with a little kind of recap of your background for the people who aren't familiar with you, if you wouldn't mind running us through that. Sure thing. I was born and raised in Brazil. I, I moved to the U.S. Uh, uh, to go to college back in the days, and I um, I was a, a tennis player. Uh, well, going back a little further, I, I grew up with uh, my 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 dad was a, a business owner in Brazil, sort of in a I would say an emerging rich class family there, and uh, things turned south all of a sudden. His business didn't do very well, and uh, so it was a uh, uh, very interesting uh, environment to uh, live in, in Brazil, going from uh, what we thought we were in the perfect life to going to the other side of things. And uh, um, so I grew up, um, you know, watching that struggle uh, and at some point. And um, after that, I, I was uh, going to start playing tennis uh, even more. I, I really wanted to uh, to have a life in, in the U.S. And that was my access to to come here. I was I was recruited to play tennis in a um, in a in a D1 school in, in, in Virginia, I, I played tennis there. I, I wasn't the greatest tennis player, and so I decided to uh, again. This, that was just an access to come here. I moved into another college in uh, Missouri, finish up my college uh, education, and then moved to uh, Denver with another friend of mine, uh, also from the UK. And uh, um, and then after that, we uh, uh, I, I was able to uh, to start my you know doing some of my work in uh, Crescent uh, um, with uh, started really with emerging markets uh, as I have a very strong background uh, coming from Brazil and uh, uh, after that we started you know merging uh, kind of uh, breaking out branching out from uh, other topics uh, with uh, more of a macro environment and uh, started using a lot of Kevin's uh, principles, Kevin's uh, CEO of Prescott and founder, um, yeah, start using some of his principles to creating uh, a lot of the fundamental equity models that we have. But on the quant side, um, uh, especially with uh, with the macro indicators and trying to figure out where we are in the business cycle in different parts of the world, 
that was a fun project. It really evolved the whole investment process that we have here. Um, and from there, um, I became a, a portfolio manager later on with, uh, with Kevin. And, uh, and we've been uh, branching out again recently with our views about precious metals and launched a new fund uh, and with a strategic partnership with Quentin Haney uh, and uh, with the goal of really uh, trying to implement this, uh, this gold and silver idea uh, the, the best way as possible. So it's been a, a huge learning curve from, uh, uh, from college to, uh, to, to where I am today. And uh, I'm very glad uh, to go from, uh, from all those uh, different places. Uh, all of those are very important parts of my life. Yeah, you know, I, I always love talking to people who have kind of come to this precious metals idea from a background that isn't that. They're not diehard precious metals guys who are just looking for another way to tell the story. Uh, but before we come on to that, just take me back to those days in Brazil where, you know, you as a kid were watching your, your father's business struggle. Talk a little bit about what that was like, what it was that led to that, and kind of the, the, the pace at which that unfolded. Because I, I think for people who haven't experienced that, which is most people in the West at this point, It'll be quite an interesting exercise in understanding how these things can happen. Sure. I was about, you know, my parents had a, a retail store that was doing very well in Sao Paulo and started uh, to really grow exponentially at the time. And uh, uh, what happened was uh, he started to really expand his business in different parts of Brazil. Um, and uh, that was the very beginning when China began to export a lot of products uh, to Brazil and start really killing the margins of his business. Uh, he, I don't think he really realized that as a, as a real threat. Um, you know, part of his uh, business is strategy. And I think that that really turned out to be a, a bad outcome at the time. And we went from, you know, really leveraging up in a way, uh, I wouldn't say through so much debt, but it was, it was really a, a leverage on the whole uh, family was involved in the business. I mean, I, I grew up in his stores, you know, working with him in, in any level you can think of. I, I used to deliver uh, papers and uh, to to try to drive people to to the stores. I used to work with my mom to to, to clean up the store and make everything look good and uh, you know organize things and understand uh, you know that we had employees that maybe could uh, uh, we could have issues with. So I always grew up in an environment which was very dynamic uh, and active, um, and from there. Um, you know, just watching, <laughs> we going from a very busy store to no one showing up. It was very difficult. And I knew my, my, my parents, uh, it was their baby. Um, it was very difficult to watch. And uh, we were, you know, going to very nice schools. And tennis is a very um, sort of high class sport in Brazil. It's mm -hmm. like golf in a lot of ways in different areas, especially uh, in, in that area where I lived in Brazil. And so it was, it was and I couldn't afford anymore to, uh, to play tennis in some of the areas. And so I had to talk to, uh, to one of my coaches and he was, he allowed me to, uh, to, uh, to play tennis there for free. And I was, uh, I was a real, <laughs> I, I like to think I was a real hard work and I really helped a lot of the other kids to, uh, um, to hopefully do well too. And, uh, that coach was a, a big inspiration in my life. And he always told me, you know, don't, don't really, uh, try to just become a tennis player, try to become a lot more than that. And uh, that was a key part of my life because he really, he came here to the U.S., got his education for basically a free cost and uh, came back to the, to Brazil and built this tennis academy. And I, I was, at the time, I wanted to do something similar. And so he helped me out to uh, to get to the level of getting, a, a, being recruited and being at the level that I could at some point come here and uh, learn English and, uh, and start from the bottom. Yeah. And so it's been a, 
a very long journey, but uh, uh, here I am. <laughs> but, but you know, it, I, I'm always fascinated by these early experiences that people have, but particularly ones like that, which are which are have the potential to be incredibly traumatic at the time, particularly you know when when you're young, but also I think over the rest of your life hold you in great stead because I think the experiences you pick up from situations like that is absolutely invaluable going forward. So, so you know, when you look back on it, what did those times teach you and how have you kind of used those in your career to date? I think being grounded in a family environment was such an important thing and, and making sure you were around the surroundings of, of yourself is uh, not only health and the mindset, but also uh, with the relationships that you build. And my parents, even though the economic and financial situation literally went from everything to nothing, uh, from driving one of the nicest cars in Brazil to driving one of the worst cars in Brazil and uh, having money to go out and not having money to go out. And, um, you know, we still stick together as a family. And uh, I really appreciated that. And I learned a lot. And my, my dad later on built another business and now he's doing great. <laughs> and so yeah. I think it's uh uh, we turn it around as a family, and I think that was uh, very important. But I, I've seen you know, a lot of issues, you know, when my parents didn't have money to pay for uh, little things, you know, or at the time they're not little, but uh, debt in general uh, that they had for to uh, um, uh, to continue to have their businesses. And uh, it was desperate modes at the time, and uh, we had to sell a lot of things. And uh, when you're going through that when you're 13, 14, you don't really understand. That's a time when you're trying to uh, – show off as a, a teenager and uh um you know for me that was that was difficult so i had to uh, i had to deal with that and it was it was fine everything turned out great uh later on so uh um i guess uh, uh i know some of the bottom i'm, I'm sure I, I may have another bottom in my life and uh i'm ready for it <laughs> yeah i yeah look, it's it's I, I think it's so interesting because particularly now you know as we get into the the subject that we're going to talk about shortly and you realize just how fragile the financial system is. Your countries like Brazil and Argentina and, and many countries in Asia, they have these periodic times, or, or they certainly have had over the last 50 years in recent memory, where it has been boom and bust. And, and, the, and the bust part of the cycle has had real world consequences for families like yours. Whereas in the West, we haven't really seen that. I mean, we got a whiff of it in 2008, mainly through the unemployment side of things. But 2000 was more of a stock market crash followed by a, a kind of tough but you know fairly short-lived recession, if we're honest. So people in the West just haven't experienced that kind of thing. So you know, talking to guys like you who've had these experiences firsthand, particularly when the West does feel so fragile, is I just think it's such an important thing to be able to tap into and understand the mindset in those times. Well, look, I, you know, I remember um, re really seeing my dad in the uh, mid-19s um, at the time he was, he was, you know, in also desperate mode and needed to, uh, to sell at the time the currency was crashing. So we've had, I think the, 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 the more developed world economies have a very good, um, grasping of, of crashes, but not, uh, a very good, uh, understanding of monetary debasement. Um, yeah, yeah. sure. We've uh, seen a lot of debasement in the dollar and other uh, currencies worldwide in the developed uh, countries. Um, however, uh, nothing close to what we saw in any place such as Argentina, Brazil, Venezuela, and so forth. Uh, Brazil in the mid-90s went through a, a total uh, currency collapse, as you know, and, and that was, um, you know, my dad had to buy a motorcycle. You know, he didn't know how to invest, and um, he had to, uh, instead of holding up on cash, he, he bought a motorcycle, ended up making money on that, uh, luckily. 
Um, and th this was, uh, you know, this is the first uh, a step of, of trying to buy something tangible um, and knowing that there is value, more value that, uh, that a currency that is backed by a corrupt uh, government. But the, the, the differences between the political environment in the U.S. versus um, Brazil or Argentina, uh, Turkey, and, and even China uh, is just absurdly uh, uh, you know, uh, different. It, it, in my opinion, it's it's a whole reason why we see hyperinflation in those places. It really starts from the smart money coming out of of that, uh, as as some of the uh, companies and especially foreign companies, international large uh, enterprises begin to realize that there is a political shift. They begin to come out of those selling those assets in local currency terms, pressuring the currency to the downside. Uh, and, and then buying dollars or whatever the local currency for, is for them. Um, and and that, that is the real beginning when you start removing capitalism um, and, and you, you have usually a party, a political party in most places that begins to rise and start seeing you know, the, the opportunity to, uh, to take over. Um, I think we're going through that in Argentina in a huge way. And those, those are very uh, baby steps. They, they happen, they, it's not, it's not uh, overnight that you see those developments. And, uh, um, and Argentina has been going through that for a long time. Uh, perhaps Brazil could be going towards that direction, depending on how uh, we shifted the politics here again. Um, you know, there's a big chance we can have another left party in the place uh, in Brazil. Um, but you know, those those changes are important. And when you start seeing the move away from a smart money uh, pressuring the currency, game is over. Um, and you don't see that in the U.S. I mean, all the major enterprises are all here right now. Um, you know, the same goes uh, in some places in Europe. Um, and, and so it's it's a different environment, and it's a, the political situation and weakness really drives uh, the monetary debasement to another level. Um, and so hyperinflation could happen. It's a risk. Uh, but comparing that with emerging markets seems a, a little bit absurd, in my opinion. And I think that's the difference of uh, uh, the analytical work coming from someone that maybe had a background uh, from that, those countries uh, and, and coming here and seeing. You know, sometimes I hear the corruption scandals in the U.S. They don't, they don't, they're not even close to what we see in Brazil, not even close. And so, um, and so, it, you know, and I know things are bad here relative to history or, uh, or, or just, uh, or how things are, are, are pending out, uh, especially in the, in the last few years. But uh, it's, again, uh, the, the differences are, are also uh, d drastically, uh, especially with emerging markets, in my view. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's most definitely a, a relative game. The outcry over perceived corruption in places like the US and and recently in the UK and, and other places is it's a relative thing. So you're absolutely right. They're nowhere. They're not on the scale um, that we've seen in South America and, and Asia over the years. But for those countries, it definitely feels like a time where kind of lawlessness and and corruption is is being allowed to to continue really in, in plain sight. Tavi, you you mentioned debasement there, and that brings me on to one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, and that was um, actually a Twitter thread that you you put up, uh, I think it was in late February maybe, potentially early March, and it was a fantastic thread where you talked about debasement, you talked about the situation, and I think it just said the Fed is trapped and here's how. So if you can, I'd love you to walk us through that thread and, and the kind of steps along the way because that, that will bring us on to, no doubt, the the subject at hand, which is, which is uh, precious metals. Yeah, I think it all starts from from where we are in terms of the fiscal policies and monetary policies that we've seen. I mean, obviously, everybody knows that that's um, that the deficit is the worst in 70 years or plus years. Um, but the, the issue is that when you divide up how much 
the Federal Reserve has been purchasing of treasuries, especially in 2020, uh, and you divide the whole amount uh, to, uh, to uh, on a monthly basis, and you realize that the number that we're buying today is significantly lower. On the other hand, the assurances of treasuries are going to be much higher. And, and the actual number of, of twin deficits that we have is worsening, not improving. And so for me, when I hear, you know, just a few weeks ago, I remember hearing all this narrative about yield curve control, and now we're back to tapering in just a few weeks. And I think that it's almost impossible to see any, any sort of tightening from the Federal Reserve, given what we are. I think the framework of trying to understand uh, what the Federal Reserve is doing and justifying their policies by looking at a dual mandate of inflationary stability at the same time as having maximum employment is is just it's just not uh, it's, it's just not fitting uh, what's what's really happening. Uh, the the Federal Reserve mandate right now is just one is to suppress interest rates and allow the government to continue to uh, pile on more and more debt. Uh, and, and allow, allow them to to not go bankrupt in general, and so um, I think that that's uh, that leads to uh, you know investors uh, not uh, trying to hoard uh, capital or cash in, in, in looking for tangible assets, uh, and creates a reflexivity dynamic of of buying not only tangible assets, commodities, and driving uh, one of the most important things, which is consumer prices going up. Uh, something we haven't seen in a long time. Uh, and then we hit the pandemic, and the pandemic is, is another uh, issue, uh, which I've done a lot of studies going back to the 1919 Spanish flu, um, where you can find uh, that it wasn't really uh, the, the aggregate demand that was driving inflation back then. It was, it was the, it was the uh, supply constraints that were uh, driving that reacceleration of consumer prices uh, that actually created a crash in the equity markets. There, there's, there's a lot of misconceptions about inflation uh, and, and, and what are the right assets to own. So as investors begin to hoard tangible assets, in my view, we may see uh, consumer prices beginning to rise and, and this notion of inflation is becoming more and more prevalent as a narrative for the general population. Um, and I'll, I'll talk to people now, everyone's talking about inflation. Um, and so uh, I think for traders, the first reaction uh, uh, as you have more of a, a trader's hat is to is to fade that, that kind of situation. But it's very different. Inflationary forces, when they begin, um, they, it's kind of like a feedback loop. Uh, and, and, and this is sort of what we're seeing. You know, investors are starting to realize that they're buying uh, any, any sort of tangible asset. What's funny to me is, is I know we can get into gold and silver later on, uh, is, is how, how in the world we have all the macro environments uh, and macro drivers to die for. <laughs> and people were talking about how Bitcoin is going to replace gold and silver. And so, um, you know, there's, it, it's, it's quite interesting that part from a, from a capital allocation perspective. But why is the Federal Reserve really uh, uh, trapped? You know, that it's not only how the government is doing, but it's, you know, look at the revenues even from, from the revenue side uh, of, of the government. I mean, it's, it's also rolling over uh, in, in a significant way. Uh, but it goes down to the issuances of treasuries. Just in the last, last two months, we saw about $600 billion issue of notes and bonds. Uh, and the Federal Reserve uh, bought about 25% of that. Uh, and so no, no kidding, we saw interest rates rising. Um, and so how do we taper from here? Uh, we, we can't really taper. On top of it, um, how do you allow interest rates to rise, regardless of what's going on with the government side, 
with valuations. You have a whole financial market here uh, where valuations are at record levels and you need to suppress interest rates to allow and justify valuations to be where they are. And so uh, as, we, as we see here, I, I keep thinking, what's the bullish case for the equity markets? Um, it's very tough because if they taper, that's negative. And if they allow the economy to grow, that's inflationary forces creeping up. It shouldn't be positive for, uh, for high multiple names. And so it, it's, uh, it's, it, you know, that's the whole reason why they're trapped. They have to continue to buy assets here, especially, um, especially on the side of, uh, of, the, of the treasury market. Uh, the treasury market is, is what holds the key for financial markets today, especially. Uh, I think it used to be the dollar. Both are very connected. Uh, but I think it's the treasury market now, given where we are with the government uh, debt at 140 plus percent of debt to GDP. And so uh, it's a lot to unpack, uh, but it really comes down to one thing. It comes down to after watching this unfold uh, and you start seeing what are the opportunities ahead, you look at commodities to equity ratios still at very, very depressed levels uh, relative to history. You know, just a few months ago was a fresh 50-year low. And so I think, you know, when I look at this and I see the supply side of things where uh, a green agenda, political environment, it's just adding up beautifully to the commodity side of uh to the commodity trade. And so um, I like, you know, mostly uh, monetary metals, but I think a lot of commodities will benefit from this. Um, and my final thought real quick, uh, Grant, is as, as you start seeing this inflationary uh, scenario uh, sort of uh, painting up here, uh, one of the most important things is looking back in history and, and seeing what assets really performed during those periods. And really, if you look back, there were really two decades uh, in the last century, uh, which was 1910s and, and 1970s. The 1940s, we saw sporadic increases in consumer prices, uh, but also declines, uh, which were very steep. And so it wasn't uh, a great decade to, to look. Uh, in 1910s and 1970s, uh, we had a really annualized returns of, of equities. You, you, know, some of, you can look at Dow Jones or just the S&P, um, and you find that it was, it was less than 1%. Now, if you include inflation rates running above 6% uh, on a median basis during the whole decade, now you have negative real returns. Um, and at a time when also in both decades, uh, guess what did very well? Commodities. And so I think we are in this environment right now where I think um, the commodities to equity ratio is, is probably one of the most important charts or, or factors or, I'm sorry, or ratios that you should be um, uh, looking at. Um, and, and I think of, as an investor, you should be uh, very aware of the valuations on the one side of the equity markets and the resource, uh, natural resource uh, uh, industries that, that should really benefit from this. Yeah, I, 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 that chart, I think I've used that chart more times than I care to remember, frankly. It's, it's, I think you're right. It's such an important chart. Tavi, in that, in that thread, you, you looked a little bit at, at things like um, uh, historical tax brackets, for example, versus government debt when, when we enter periods like this. Talk a little bit about what you found historically because you know, it's so important to look at the historical parallels because you know, I think there's an awful lot of clues there about what's going to happen. So, so just run us through your, your key findings when you look back through history at similar periods. Yeah, um, well, look, if, if uh, you start going back and seeing, look, we're spending more than we spend in, in, you know, in any other time in history and we're, revenues are also rolling over. And so who's going to pay for the party? Is the Federal Reserve going to be able to continue to do what they have been doing? 
is is uh, you know as inflationary forces begin to uh, to rise, uh, those are the important questions that, that investors should be asking. And when I look at uh, I was looking especially uh, of, of tax rates throughout history. And if you look at the, the highest marginal tax bracket uh, throughout, all the way back to the 1900s, relative to uh, debt to GDP or public debt to GDP in the U.S., what you find is that they basically follow each other so closely. But uh, the very large and significant geopolitical and macro uh, events that we've had in history really caused that to grow relative to nominal GDP. Uh, but also, uh, somebody had to pay for, it, for for this, and who had to pay for this was the taxpayer. And so we had um, the uh, marginal tax bracket grow significantly. And some folks would say, well, but that didn't really impact a lot of the risky assets. You know, equity markets actually continue to go higher during periods when tax rates went up significantly. And that's that's true. However, the valuations were not anywhere close to where we are today. We tracked at least 20 plus uh, factors here at Craskett and almost every single one of those of, you know, on aggregate terms and medium terms, average terms, uh, different universes uh, from small, large cap, everything is expensive. Um, and so uh, when you have that and you have factor in somewhere close to 40% increasing earnings from the prior peak, um, I don't think the tax rates increase is really is really uh, being factored in here. And so there's an alligator mouth today from uh, that research you're referring to where the, ta- the marginal tax bracket, believe it or not, has been going sideways at the same time as government debt has been going exponentially higher. And so um, I think the alligator mouth needs to close. And I don't think that the, it's, it's the debt to GDP that will decline. I am I am very uh, certain that it's going to be uh, the, the the tax rates that are going to have to go a lot higher here, and it will have impacts on risky assets, in my view, uh, different than what we saw in other times. Um, and you know, this roaring twenties idea, there's there's almost like two narratives really going on today: the very inflationary one, the deflationary one, um, and and both have very valid points, in my opinion. Um, you know, the inflationary one, as we discussed already, I think has a lot of valid points, but this is not a, a reflation uh, anymore. This is not coming back from the press levels back to, to historical average uh, that we've had so far in consumer prices and other things. This is starting to become uh, uh, you know, not only diminishing returns in terms of the policies as a whole, but we're starting to see the real problem here of inflationary forces really creeping up. Um, and the funny thing is that policymakers don't care. Um, they are inst- instead continuing the same policies. Um, and so I think, I think that, that it, we may be, we have a high probability of, of triggering a long-term inflationary uh, cycle here. And if that happens, I, I don't think the equity markets are at all priced uh, uh, for that environment. And so um, I think there's going to be a lot of changes. We call it sort of the great rotation where you have this high growth names uh, justified by this sort of positive deflationary environment, as some some like to say, um, I don't think that's going to be the case going forward. And so profitability may become another factor. We all know factors change over time. Um, And so, you know, we've had top line growth and revenue growth being things that are very significant. I think we're going to see profitability coming back to the picture and, and that's going to create value in stocks to, uh, to become more relevant again. So, uh, again, a lot of things to unpack on that question, but uh, this is uh, 
um, some, some issues, but a lot of opportunities in my view. It's, it's not doom and gloom at all. There's a lot of very good opportunities in the markets, uh, given the, this, this scenario laid out. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a really important point to kind of labour is that uh, even though there are an awful lot of black clouds over the economy over markets, um, it does provide opportunities, and and that's what we'll we'll get into shortly in terms of the commodity space and particularly the precious metals. But you, you know, when you wrote that thread, you talked about how the Fed was trapped, and uh, when you when you talked there about policymakers not caring about you know the kind of the ramifications of their policy, it, you know, it feels to me that that. I think you're right, they are trapped. And so I'm not sure it's they're not caring rather than they have no choice at this point because you know as you as you as you point out in that thread and I'll make sure I link to it in the transcript of this podcast so people can read it in its entirety because it's it's I think it's an incredibly important one. You demonstrate beyond any shadow of a doubt that there really is nothing they can do at this point. And the only real course of action that they can undertake is to allow inflation to run hot. They've signaled that they're ready to do that. They've also tried to kind of keep the horses calm and in the barn by, you know, talking very gentle terms about how it might run a little hot for a little while. But the, the danger, obviously, is that it gets out of hand. And that comes back to the fact that, as you pointed out earlier on here, that inflation is mostly about expectations. And we seem to be in that point in the cycle now where inflationary expectations are confounding a lot of the deflationist narrative. Well, yes, and, and it's it's interesting how, in terms of the the what policymakers are communicating back to investors, um, it's uh, you know we all we all know it's data driven, isn't it? But uh, it's it's their own data. Uh, you look at median CPI for that the Federal Reserve calculates; it's at a seven-year low. So, uh, how in the world that's the case when virtually every commodity, or it, aside from masks, which might be up actually again, but uh, um, uh, you know, almost virtually any commodities and, and consumer prices in general are up significantly. Not 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 just ten percent or twenty percent, significantly more than that. Um, and so, I think there's really three pillars of inflation uh, really running at all cylinders right now. Um, the demand side, so let's discuss that one first. Uh, it comes from the savings, in my opinion. Um, we've had savings uh, really shot up to about six plus trillion dollars back in April of 2020 in March uh, with those policies that we saw of helicopter money, giving money to people and so forth. Um, well, that unleashed another $3.6 trillion of consumer spending for the next 12 months. Okay, that is 7.5 times higher than, than the annual consumer spending uh, since the 1960s, uh, the average of consumer spending. Um, this year, uh, why am I talking about this? Is because it shot up again recently to uh, $6 trillion. And uh, now the economy is reopening. I think we're going to see uh, at least another uh, $4 plus trillion of consumer spending in the next 12 months. Um, and how do I think about deflation in that environment when uh, the supply chain is not ready for that? The other thing that is happening on the demand side is that households are improving net worth-wise. And you may say, well, those are assets. No, I'm looking at bottom 50% of the population where they hold about 30 to 40% in real estate that has been going up. Another reason why you need to suppress rates, right? Because you've got to yeah. uh, continue yeah. to have house prices going higher. Um, however, uh, that's you know that's going to have an impact when you give money to the bottom. That's, again, coming from an emerging markets. Um, uh, when emerging market, you know that if you give money to the bottom 50%, they will spend. 
Um, and so in the last, you know, we're seeing money printing doesn't lead to inflation because it didn't in global financial crisis. Well, uh, that was one of the major reasons for that was that the bottom 50% lost about 84% of the net worth during the global financial crisis. This time we saw the largest increase in net worth in history, in the middle of a recession. So it's drastically different. Um, and then on the cost push sides, which is the second pillar of inflation, you have you know the supply problems, uh, which now everybody talks about it. It's a, you know we we wrote a a, a, a report in about the 1919 Spanish flu and how we thought that this was going to sort of lead to uh, you know a, a shortage of, of especially raw materials uh, that leads to higher consumer prices, not because of demand. Um, but the, you know when you think okay, so what's next? Uh, all right, you call that one. What's next? Well, the next part is I think we're at the early stages of an upsurge. Uh, in labor management conflict, where I think um, uh, labor costs is, is going to go significantly higher. We've been in a, a downward trend for wages and salaries uh, for years, you know, for decades. Uh, and so I think that's about to change. Uh, as, as the cost of living becomes more and more expensive, I think uh, you're going to start seeing workers uh, demand higher wages and salaries. And what really exacerbates that force really is uh, what's going on with the policies that we're seeing. Um, discouraging people uh, to go back to work. And so this was not happening in 1919, by the way. Uh, this is uh, a problem that we're seeing today. So that was a, a very drastic difference. Again, that's going to squeeze margins from, from companies as a whole. And the third pillar, uh, pillar that I wanted to just discuss quickly is monetary debasement. Uh, we've talked about this already, which is uh, what the Federal Reserve is doing, uh, being trapped and having to buy treasuries and having to suppress interest rates. I don't think that's going to change. And so when you have all those three um, going uh, on top of uh, um, uh, on, on, uh, forward on inflation, I really think that what we're going to see is, is a high probability of, of entering a long-term inflationary cycle, uh, which is going to change the entire investing uh, uh, landscape, in my opinion. So um, I'm very focused on inflation. And unfortunately, a lot of macro traders are seeing this as an opportunity to fade um, uh, this uh, this sort of uh, repricing of uh, since the press levels that we saw in March, I don't think that's going to be the case at all. I think we're we're entering something very different than what we saw in the last decade or so. It's so interesting, Toby, because th this inflation deflation debate has, as I keep saying, it's just muscled its way to the forefront of just about every conversation that I'm having lately. I mean, it's it's remarkable actually, and, and what surprises me is the number of people for whom I have the greatest amount of respect to who remain firmly in the deflation camp. And, and, and I, like you, I, I believe that inflation is finally here. And, and after many, many false alarms, which, which has been great if you've been a deflationist, you've been, been able to stay on that train for a long time. I too get the feeling that even if inflation isn't here now, we've seen the turn and we now have to prepare for an inflationary environment. How do you react to not necessarily that the continued deflation argument but the caliber of people who remain in that camp because you know I, for me it definitely makes me challenge my assumptions simply because of the say the high respect i have for these guys but ultimately i i just can't stay in the deflation camp i find it really difficult well i think there's a there's a lot of reasons to to believe um look i think there are valid points on the deflationary side we have 
real speculative bubbles in lots of different parts of the world. And the reckoning of those are certainly very deflationary, not inflationary. And so um, I think that that's uh, uh, something we have to respect on that side of the argument. Um, and I do, by, by being having a short book on the equity side, um, as I think that, that that could be one of the ways to, to really uh, be positioned for that. But when you start looking at the, the, the trends in general, uh, from for me, one of them is starts from the bottom 50% that I've already said. I think it starts from that. The net worth of the population is growing. We're relocating the macro imbalances from the private sector, from, from households, and putting on, uh, on, the, on the government side. And uh, it, you know, it's just setting up perfectly for monetary debasement. And some you know, technically like to say this is not money printing or this is not... Um, uh, you know, monetization of, of debt. Uh, but no, let's be honest, it's, it's it basically it's. And so um, I think I think there's a lot of deflationary folks that I also have a lot of respect for that are getting too hung up on the technicality of the terms uh, rather than focusing on the big picture where we've had uh, commodities going down in the last decade or so uh, significantly and, and that impacting inflationary forces uh, to be also suppressed. Um, at the same time as we've had wages and salaries declining for the last few decades. Um, and, and now we have this dual policy of, of fiscal and monetary, uh, along with, uh, you know, because of this, uh, you know, very poor performance in the commodity space. And I'm not talking about the last year, obviously. I'm talking about the last 10 years. Um, we looked at the investments uh, in, in, in the space, especially in the gold and silver and copper space and iron ore space. You look at CapEx. For, for those in aggregate terms, it has been declining, not, not in a small percentage, in a huge percentage uh, on an annual basis uh, or all the way back to from, from 08. And so uh, what's happening is that we're seeing even the labor market in the mining industry, the labor market in the energy industry uh, declining significantly already. For And that, that has nothing to do with the pandemic. That has been happening for, it's a long-term trend. And so the underinvestments in, in the resource, the natural resource environment uh, is just adding to this picture. And we know how long it takes for you to get a permit to start mining somewhere. And, and now you have on top of it, uh, given uh, how many years have, have we had uh, been exploring uh, the earth, um, you know, we're now finding geological uh, challenges to, to really find gold, silver and other natural resources that are even more useful for the day-to-day -day of, of folks. And so when I start looking at that and I see the exploration budget of companies in the commodity space, um, you start seeing that that's, you know, that's going to have an impact that's not jiving with uh, this, uh, this return of the economy uh, right now, where everyone thinks that the, the inflationary forces are only transitory. Are they? I think it's a little bit more permanent than most are, are thinking. I don't buy into the demand side so much because I believe in business cycles. And I think that we are uh, very close to, uh, uh, to the peak of the business cycle, if we have not already peaked, in my opinion, because there's a lot of the leaders in the market. So from, uh, mm -hmm. from the tech names to uh, you know, MicroStrategy down already, 60 plus percent of yeah. Bitcoin is already down significantly. ARK investments down significantly. Um, you know, Peloton, <laughs> all those small little companies that are kind of telling because they're the, the high uh, companies that we've had so far. Uh, Chinese stocks are down. Uh, you know, a, a significant percentage as well. 
And so, you know, maybe this is just another correction, but uh, I have a feeling that, that it probably isn't. It probably could be the peak of the business cycle. Um, and if, if it is, you know, what we're going to see is, is even more policies like we saw in the last year. So uh, I think it's difficult to see a deflationary environment when you have, um, when you have really popped and uh, uh, gradually increasing your policies as a, as a response to, uh, to a, a decline of, of, of economic growth. And so uh, I believe that um, I think we are entering this, this long-term inflationary cycle right now. Um, and, you know, I, I think there is a high probability of, of that being correct. Uh, but I keep my eye on, on the deflationary story, too, because um, I think there are some good points, especially from a speculative bubble um, uh, aspect uh, that are important to, uh, uh, to consider. So, so with, with all that as background, let, let's dig into the commodity sector and talk a little bit about you know, once you started looking at that sector, talk a little bit about what you found there it, with, with respect specific kind of corners of that industry and then we'll get into the precious metal side of things because you guys have done some tremendous work in 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 that part of the commodity spectrum sure i think it it all you know begins with this commodity to equity ratio was really the beginning of it how can we really dive into this and implement it the best way as possible as we saw back in 2018 was when when we launched uh one of our precious metal strategies um and the beginning really was uh, we thought precious metals was going to lead the way to the upside, um, and then we might see other commodities also do very well. Uh, we like monetary metals because of our views about the environment and how the Federal Reserve is trapped, uh, and, and, and we think that we'll continue to see uh, a race to the bottom of fiat currencies in general. And so uh, we thought that that would be uh, probably the best uh, form of, uh, of protection of capital and growth. And uh, when looking at this, this whole environment, especially from the mining side of things, uh, we started realizing uh, the skepticism, not only in the industry, given uh, how poorly they have performed in the last, uh, uh, since uh, 2011 or so, obviously not recently, but uh, uh, we've had a, a kind of a, a very steep bear market, as you know, Grant, and that really you know, dried out capital and, and made it very difficult for the commodity space to survive. We saw oil having a, a few busts in the last few years and even going negative in prices. Um, and at some point, we knew that those, those uh, things would change to the upside. Uh, we can't go from the, from the old economy to the new economy without commodities. Everyone is very excited about the innovation cycle and the curve that we're seeing right now. Uh, but we need commodities to get there uh, first and foremost. And then on top of it, you got the green agenda uh, also uh, now adding to this, uh, the picture with the political environment. So when you start seeing really uh, what happened in the 19, we look back in 1970s and also during the Great Depression and even during the tech bubble, which are three different, you know, a a, a deflationary bust, an inflationary bust, and then uh, more of a speculative bust, which was um, the, the, the tech bubble. And what you find there is that actually uh, those, in those three environments, we have a divergence where gold stocks especially end up doing better, much better, not only that, but diverging, going up while the market was climbing. Um, and we thought that since you know, a lot of folks are trying to fight the last war, what we saw in the March 2020 and also what we saw in 2008 uh, would potentially happen again where gold stocks get completely crushed along with the equity markets. We thought, hey, I think this is our, our, our hedge. Uh, given our views about the monetary environment, uh, we think that the Federal Reserve is going to continue to do more. 
And, and so there is a very high probability that we may see a divergence between the two where the S&P and the other equity indices will continue to lead to lower levels while we see uh, precious metals and other commodities doing very well. Um, I have a little bit of caution on more cyclical commodities such as uh, copper and oil and some other base metals, but uh, we do see the, the supply constraints of, of those uh, of those other uh, parts of the commodity sector um, as also being attractive, uh, at least for the, the medium term. Um, and so uh, from, a, from an investment side of things, and especially uh, looking at the profitability of those businesses, we start seeing that the precious metal space began to become uh, more lucrative, and especially on a free cash flow basis, uh, we begin to see free cash flow growth on a year-over-year -year basis. We begin to see free cash flow yield improving relative to tech companies. Um, and so uh, when you, if you run a quant model or anything like that, I've had other shops telling me, oh, I'm starting to see some mining companies here now. It's, it's interesting because we, we haven't really been focused on free cash flow growth for a long time. We have all been focused on uh, revenue growth. And when we talk about the great rotation from, from growth to value, most of the value companies are in the commodity space. And so I think that the, the, the change to relevance in, in profitability um, and the, the suppression of interest rates, which creates a supercharged environment uh, for the commodity space, um, and and the, the, the level of underinvestments in the space, you know, made us uh, make a move as a company and say, well, let's, let's look for a way of implementing this in a better form. So um, we decided, you know, if, if, as you know very well, you look at the whole mining space, you have the, the production companies, you have the developers, and you have the early discovery companies uh, still trying to drill and find a discovery of gold and silver or any other commodity. Um, and given our views of entering a, a secular bull market for some of those commodities, especially the monetary metals, we thought that it would be uh, uh, prudent from our side to take more risk, actually, um, and, and go up on the risk curve, where most investors tend to focus on the, the, the easy names, the easier names that, that you can get your arms around, the ones that have free cash flow, the ones that have fundamental data uh, more established. Um, where you can run a model on that, uh, where you can compare with other decades and so forth. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we said, well, look, there is also a depletion of reserves happening in the commodity space, especially from the major producers, that will be looking for replacements of those projects. And, and so we decided to make a, a shift as a business and partner with uh, where I think is the most successful geologist uh, in the world in terms of discoveries of gold and silver and, and, even, and even other base metals is Quinton Haney. And so we, we made that move uh, as a company and, and began to have a portfolio of ideas uh, within the mining space, especially in the very early stages. So uh, this is how everything kind of uh, came about, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's a much deeper strategy than just uh, commodities to equity ratio being at a, a near all-time lows. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, these mining companies, uh, like you, know, I've followed these mining companies for a long, long time, and, and they've, had, they've had so many periods where they've looked ready to, to perform only to be kind of uh, hampered by either poor execution or yes, poor decision making by the management, or, or, or you know ex exterior events which have kind of affected the whole complex. But it, it really does seem to me now as though, uh, as you say, there, there's a tailwind here for precious metals companies. That the, the balance sheets are in good shape. They've paid down all of their debt. Uh, 
the managements have really taken the last sort of five to 10 years when they've been battered by investors to try and make them do the right thing for the company and not just constantly issue stock to chase pipe dreams. So just talk a little bit about the shape that you find the precious metals industry in and some of the companies that you can talk about that highlight aspects of that that you've found to be encouraging. Okay, that's a, that's a good question. I think it started for us from mostly the you know our research on the demand side and being constructive on on metals, and then we started diving in a little more, um, even though it was more on the macro level to understand what was happening with the industry. What we found is that there's almost like a new era happening with uh, the gold miners. We've had years and decades of uh, of, of skepticism in the industry and money uh, coming out of that. Uh, those companies uh, from investors. And, and the other thing that we saw was the, the especially bleeding capital uh, uh, for over 20 plus years. You know, we've had a, a free cash flow being negative for those companies besides one period in 2011, which was the peak. Uh, but during the whole period of time, in the last 25 years, we've had a, a negative free cash flow for the entire industry. And for, you know, I'm referring to, if you look at the top miners right now, top 50 miners, and, and you take the, that by market cap and the Canadian and U.S. exchange, and you take the, the 12-month uh, uh, free cash flow uh, to enterprise value, a medium terms, or you can do an aggregate, whatever you want to do, you, what you find is that it's the first time we're seeing the last four quarters that the median company in that, in that environment, uh, or I should say five quarters now, uh, had free cash flow positive. So uh, it seems to me uh, that a lot of investors is, are, are avoiding this, uh, given the history, and not doing the homework at all on this in this overall industry. Uh, when I looked at the free cash flow uh, uh, profile of those businesses relative to tech companies, they're much more attractive. They're not only a value proposition, but with a lot of growth embedded in those businesses, we're seeing free cash flow growth of 130% year over year in some of those miners. And um, so if you just aggregate free cash flow for uh, the gold and silver miners, also for the top 50 miners, what you find there is that the gro- it looks like a tech company. It's been, it's been growing exponentially uh, recently. 73% of the miners today in the gold and silver space are profitable on a free cash flow basis. I mean, how many people know that? Um, yeah. You look at the balance sheet. Um, if you look at the balance sheet side of the business, um, we saw about uh, 40% or so of the free cash flow that they generated, which was uh, one of the largest amounts in history in the last quarter. Um, 40% of that was used to pay down debt. Do you know what happened in 2011? They leverage up, not down. Uh, they increased uh, their, their debt by the largest amount in history, long-term and short-term debt. This time around, we saw the largest repayment of debt in history. So the difference with that relative to other periods that we saw peaks when we see fundamental improvement in gold and silver is, is really important. Uh, if you looked at just uh, uh, just the balance sheets from a, a debt to asset ratio relative to other sectors in the economy, you name it, consumer uh, discretionary, consumer staples or tech companies, you, you can name any, any sector. If the gold and silver mining industry was a sector the median um, debt asset ratio would be lower than any other sector in the economy today. Um, and then the biggest part for me, uh, Grant, that I think it comes down to in terms of the asymmetry of this trade is that when I look at the aggregate market cap for the entire industry at about, call it $550 billion uh, today, uh, compared to Apple, 
which is about four times the size of the whole industry. And you may say, well, Apple makes more money than the entire industry. Okay, yes, as of today. Um, you know, we, if we see silver prices and gold prices uh, to the levels that I think we're going to reach, um, you know, 35 bucks on silver an ounce or $50 a silver an ounce, it's game over. Those companies are highly profitable um, and, and not only highly profitable, but more profitable than, than probably uh, uh, Apple as an aggregate of the industry. And, so, yeah, yeah. Um, and you can compare that with, with any other tech company that is, you know, Tesla or, you know, you name it. And it's, I think that's um, when you start thinking about the industry that truly benefit from this macro environment, um, in my opinion, the mining space is, is one of the major ones. And so this really starts from a, a bigger picture. Um, and uh, recently we've had Newmont reaching uh, all-time highs, uh, or not all-time highs, but 34-year highs, um, as um, I, I tweeted at recently. And uh, if you look at that relative to GDXJ, just uh, junior miners, you know, still lagging uh, absurdly relative to that. And so um, I think that those are the opportunities I had still. I mean, there's a lot of positioning to be done. Um, did I answer most of your questions? I, I hope I did. Yeah, I, I think the other thing to, to point out is, is you know, which is another huge tailwind, is that I can't think of a single sector in the market that's more under-owned than precious metals miners, you know? And, and if we're talking about a rotation out of technology stocks like Apple, like the FANG stocks into this, there isn't a sector in the market that's more over-owned than those. So you have this tremendous kind of double whammy of money looking to come out of a very crowded sector into, you know, a really tiny, what is a very tiny market cap industry that cannot withstand huge inflows without significantly higher prices. You know, I, I did the numbers on this for a presentation I did back in 2015. And off the top of my head, I don't remember the numbers, but it was it was extraordinarily small, that industry. And of course, uh, you know, Steph Pomboy has pointed this out numerous times that, you know, as money comes into the precious metal sector, the more money that comes in, the more investable it becomes because it, it becomes bigger and it's able to soak up more investment dollars. It's interesting from even a, a, a corporate management behavior, uh, when you look at, now was, for instance, it's, it's insane how that works, but back in uh, 2020, I was talking to a few, the very large major uh, gold and silver companies and talking to their management team, and we asked a question about copper projects. Are you guys thinking about buying any copper projects? And copper was not really moving at the time, and the answer was no. And now we're seeing a lot of those actually taking uh, um, you know, taking some strategic uh, uh, positions in, in the copper space uh, among those those gold and silver miners, which I find it interesting how they wait until prices go up, until they make those decisions. Um, but now my question to them was, um, in, in the last uh, few months, um, hey guys, we have found this this uh, great project with a you know the you know we've had a it's already a discovery and we just need a a partnership for a co investment uh, so we can continue to lead. Uh, towards uh, developing this mine or anything uh, along those lines. And the answer from the, most of the majors was, you know, how in the world am I going to explain to my shareholders uh, that I can spend, um, you know, on a free cash flow and income statement <laughs> basis uh, uh, money on something that is not profitable yet? I can't do that right now. So that gives you the mindset uh, how early we are in this whole, in, in this whole space. And things go fast. And so, uh, you know, sometimes I'm worried I'm not fully positioned yet. <laughs> and so uh, right. I think I think I think everyone should be uh, watching for this. And as I said before, uh, 
you, know, you have all the macro drivers to, to really die for right now. Um, and, and most folks, what was the question I got the most in the last three months? Well, certainly not now after Bitcoin crashed recently, but the last three months was, Tavi, do you think Bitcoin is going to replace gold and silver? Really? Is that the right question to be asking right now? Uh, you know, at a time when we've had, you know, we, we have all this set up uh, that we never had before. Now, if you go back to, to Earth and I tell you that uh, we, we printed an amount of money printing that we had, that we're spending the amount of money we spent on the fiscal side, the, the debt surged to uh, record levels higher than World War II. Um, and, and you know, at the same time, we've had this political environment that we have with the green agenda on top of it, that, that commodity companies have not been spending any money on, on infrastructure and actually been reducing their labor uh, market and, and actually tying up costs. Um, would you be buying gold and silver? Probably yes. But no, you worry that there is a new technology that is not even a commodity will replace gold and silver. So that tells you where we are in terms of sentiment and the cycle. So I'm, I'm very focused on this. Uh, and uh, yes, I think it's a major opportunity that any macro investor or investor in general should be at least um, looking at those numbers of those companies and giving another thought about uh, how the, the fundamental analysis uh, should be should be gone a little deeper into the space to understand the profitability profile of a lot of those companies. Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's such an interesting space, and, and and there are so many different types of companies when you when you get into the precious metals complex. Can, can you talk a little bit about a couple of the companies that you like, just so people can get an, a kind of a, an understanding of how you go about valuing these companies, whether they be majors or exploration companies, because you know, it, the, the the precious metals complex is filled with stock tips. You know what I mean? It's like, oh yeah, you know, uh, there's a guy in uh, Paraguay who's found this incredible. You've got to buy this company. There's 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 been a certain lack of rigor to a lot of it, and so I'm, I'm interested in your in your process, both both with the majors, how how you identify the majors that you prefer, but also uh, how you go about selecting uh, you know smaller either exploration companies or, or pre-production companies that that you think are, are, are worth investment well the process is is a little bit different depending on where you are in the industry but if you got if you are mostly in the in the major side um that's why you see so many financially savvy investors navigating that space uh from even the development side where you can um, you, you have the data to sort of uh, have an idea of how much it's going to cost to develop a mine and how much free cash flow it's, it's, uh, they're capable of producing and uh, what's going to be, you know, sort of the positive and negative scenario. There's a lot of, you know, very savvy financial uh, guys that have been in the industry for some time that try to navigate that space. Um, certainly not us. So we're not really focused so much on that part, given our views about where we are in terms of the trend, very early stages still. Um, so the producers, that, that part of it, I mean, it really is uh, using models and just uh, trying to understand the value proposition of one company relative to another. Um, and it's, so it's very uh, uh, not, not so, so difficult, I would say. Now, on the early stage ones, uh, it's, it's very complex it, and it comes down to a lot of things. It comes down to a very good management team. 
it comes down to a very uh, good uh, risk reward uh, project in different parts. We know very well that there are projects uh, that um, you know may pan out uh, not be at, at what we thought. Uh, we've had some situations like that already where we thought it was going to be a lot of gold and silver and we end up having a lot of copper. But what's wrong when copper is at the prices that it is right now? But uh, uh, one of the things I would say that we've been very uh, really trying to do is, is to have more of a, a geographic uh, focus. And so what we do is uh, we, we try to create district plays. Uh, and so if we find a place, and I'll give you an example, SK Mining, uh, it's it's a company in the Golden Triangle. They're, uh, you know, south of Skeena. Skeena owns uh, SK Creek. SK Creek was a mine. It was a company maker for Barrick. Um, and so it was a very, very, probably one of the most profitable mines ever run anywhere in the world in history, too. Um, and so uh, we think we have the analog for the SK uh, Creek number two, what we call it. Um, and, you know, it's a it's a 500 in uh, plus kilometer square kilometer uh, a property uh, south of Skeena uh, with very similar uh, uh, geological patterns than what we saw in Aski Creek. Um, and the issue with that was a company that a lot of people thought that that was going to be the case, given the proximity with Aski Creek. Um, however, uh, end up not finding anything. Well, that was a, an issue with man, manage, manage, management team going back to the 90s. Uh, which uh, the exploration focus was not in the right place in our view. And so we switched things around. We knew that this was a VMS uh, deposit, uh, which is a style of uh, uh, volcanic deposits uh, uh, that lead up to, uh, to those uh, very profitable mines usually. Um, and so we, what we did was uh, we, we, we put together a very uh, intelligent, well, we think it's an intelligent team uh, that have done a lot of work in the VMS deposits to look for those, uh, um, to look at that data and, and, and put together a good project of core exploration, very aggressive, along with Clinton Haney. Um, what we found was that, yes, uh, there is a very high probability that we have at least another five to seven uh, targets uh, to look for something similar. And we've had very good results in the last, uh, in the last year or so with very high intercepts um, where we think that there's a lot of gold and silver in that region again. Uh, and so it starts from there, and then uh, obviously we build a position not only in the, that area, in that, um, in that company, but in, in the surroundings of that. Uh, and our goal is to really look for companies where we can find, you know, the, there's a, the exploration focus, there's another company that perhaps have a mill or a, uh, is, is already in production, and, and maybe it's not a very large production, but at least gives us some, uh, some cash flow to fund the exploration project, and then we have another development project where we can uh, uh, keep working towards three different uh, um, parts of the, of the, of the, of the business. Um, we have a few, a few investments in the, a lot of investments in the Golden Triangle area, uh, Newfoundland, uh, Nevada in the U.S. So we have a lot of investments in Brazil, um, uh, some different parts of Brazil, actually, um, and uh, Bolivia uh, in, in parts of Mexico. We avoid Africa. Uh, we have one investment in Africa. We have a lot of investments uh, in Australia uh, and two or three investments in uh in, in, in Finland, so uh, we are, you know, we're trying to uh, uh, really build a, a consolidator uh, sort of uh, uh, strategy here. Um, and uh, I think Quentin is, is you know, if people don't know who Quentin Henney is, and uh, it, it's very important to have a very uh, high-profile uh, geological uh, expert to really navigate the space. And there is, I don't think there's anybody better than Quentin which is not only a, a very expert, uh, uh, an expert in the industry, but also a person who knows how to uh, uh, 
um, how to run in a more, uh, uh, you know, in a more business way of, of really uh, putting companies together and, and, and making a whole conglomerate of, of, of big district plays as we've done so far. Uh, we take an activist approach, but that's a very friendly approach. We only work with companies that we know that they're open-minded to, uh, uh, to, uh, to work with us. And so uh, most of those companies we have, you know, when we come in, in term sheets, we make sure uh, that we have, uh, you know, the, the right focus where the money is going to be allocated to. Uh, usually we have uh, specific hopes that we want them to follow up on. Um, and uh, we've had a lot of success so far, the way we're doing things. Uh, and the goal is to continue to do that way. I'm not a geologist, so I'm not going to be the, the pretend that I know how to explain exactly how the, um, you know, how the opportunity is ahead. But I understand the macro environment, and I know that that's, uh, uh, there is a need for, for really profitable and, and, and high-grade deposits worldwide in order to replace the depletion of reserves that we're seeing from the majors. Um, and so that for me is an important point. And you're right, there's a lot of speculation on, on, on companies as a whole. Um, and not having a, a, a geologist is, uh, is, you know, you're basically blinded to, uh, to really uh, successful, successfully invest in this, in this space. Um, I think uh, we've done very well so far. I like to think that we can grow much more in this space and continue to really uh, build uh, you know, uh, very, very well pos good positions in different parts of the world. Um, and uh, that's really the goal. But it's, uh, it's really deep. And uh, I think team uh, is, is you know, having a very strong management team, which is a, a very, I would say, I would call it a scarcity in this, in this industry. Uh, there's a lot of folks sitting on very good deposits and assets, and we don't get involved with those. You know, that's not the activist approach we're looking at to replace the management team and so forth. Um, and so we, we get involved with uh, uh, with companies that are a little bit easier to work with, that are willing to work with us, uh, that we we trust the team, um, and, and that we can uh, direct them to the right exploration focus. Um, and we, we're starting to do some of the development side now. We have about 80% of our book is on the exploration, and about 20% or so is more on the development and uh, um, and, and and the production side. Um, and and so, but that's. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a long-term strategy. We want to be long-term shareholders. We want to infuse capital in the right places. Uh, we want to help them to tell the story. Uh, we want to be large shareholders of those businesses. They're very small companies. I'll give you a few if you, uh, if you want. Um, SK Mining is one of them. A newfound gold is probably one of the best uh, North American projects uh, that we're going to see here. Um, and it's, uh, it's been doing very well. Uh, a, a few of the uh, you know, more uh, early stores, Goliath uh, is, is another one that is in the Golden Triangle that is, uh, I would say, it's a very early story that could potentially be something. Uh, we have a lot of plays in Nevada from Timberline um, uh, to Ethos Gold, uh, all the way to New Legacy that is on to, uh, you know, perhaps a major discovery here, the, the, what we call the post-Betsy deposit. Um, we have investments in, in Mexico. I'll give a few. Uh, Defiance uh, Silver would be uh, one of the most important ones that we have in that region. Uh, we've had investments uh, in uh, Bisla uh, resources as well, which is trying to uh, uh, buy other assets in other different parts of, uh, of the world. Uh, in Bolivia, we probably have what we think it is probably one of the largest silver discoveries in the world right now, which is uh, 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 Eloro Resources, um, and so uh, you know, keep an eye on that one. I think that one is going to be a very large discovery. 
uh, and we have other plays in other areas of, uh, of the world. I'm not going to bother you with more names, but that's uh, uh, just give you a flavor. We have over 60 names, um, and, uh, and so we're very geographically uh, diversified and with very different stories. All of them are very unique. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I never thought I would be spending uh, so much time with, uh, uh, on calls with, with gold and silver companies, and uh, it's been a blast. I, I really enjoy learning the industry. Um, unfortunately, I can't talk geology, but uh, I, I can talk finance and macro, and uh, I think that helps us to, uh, to position ourselves very well. And uh, uh, so that's really the focus of our fund right now. You know, it's amazing. I knew that if if I lived long enough, I'd I'd meet someone who was willing to admit that they weren't a geologist. So it's 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 such a pleasure to find someone in this space that's willing to admit that. You know, I, the the amount of time I've I've spent looking at, at this industry, and you know, to me, it's such a difficult. I, I always say to people who who come to me for advice, I say, look, you know, you need to find a good fund manager who as you just said, spends all their time on these calls and understands the importance of good management and good deposits and good jurisdictions and all that things. Doing Investing in precious metals yourself, in, particularly in the, in the junior and the exploration companies, is such a difficult thing to do effectively. That I always say to people, you need to find a fund manager whose, whose strategy you believe in and let them do it for you. But for, for people out there who insist on the going into the purgatory that is the junior mining space, what advice can you give them in terms of the most important things to make sure you do to be as successful as you can be when investing in that space? Well, I think there's a lot of things, but one of the things when you come into this industry, in my opinion, that I fell into that, and I think everybody does, is to look for large deposits that have very highly leveraged uh, relative to gold and silver prices. And usually uh, large deposits and the idea of being big uh, is, is associated with uh, being low grade. And when you're trying to build a portfolio of ideas, I think that from a risk management standpoint, you want to make sure you have the probability of having very high grade deposits that will be profitable in any environment with gold and silver, basically. If we go back to silver prices from a year ago, can that project be still very profitable? If the answer is yes, you know, you, you should probably be taking a position on that. Um, and obviously, the economical side of things is very important, but I feel like a lot of folks are trying to make uh, you know, a, a lottery bet here of, of, of just buying some of very low-grade large deposits uh, with potential of changes, in, uh, uh, in especially on the political side of things, environmental side of things. That's not really where we're focused on. I think there's enough assets out there where you can take advantage of different plays in different areas where much cleaner assets. Uh, and it's funny, uh, Grant, there's, as you know, there is not a lot of people doing this at all. I mean, there's a lot of geologists um, that, you know, put their own money and uh, try to do some work there, but not a lot of uh, fund managers in a large way really uh, trying to build a whole uh, strategy uh, into this part of the, the industry. On the development side, you can see a lot of folks. I think there's a lot of savvy uh financial folks to do it. And it's part of, you know, it's, it's part of being a, a money manager is also you got to find uh, the right people to be associated with. And I couldn't find a better person than Quentin Haney. I remember very well, I'll, I'll tell you a little story. We were, uh, this was in 2019. Um, we really wanted to, you know, we were diving in uh, to this whole space and uh, doing what most do, looking at the most popular names, the GDX and GDXJ members and trying to pick and choose if we can do better than those. And 
uh, looking at our models and doing all of the diligence and talking to the management team. And we participated in a few conferences. Uh, we went there, talked to you know everyone we could, um, and you know sit down with Quentin. Kevin and Quentin were neighbors back in the '90s, um, and so uh, you know Kevin communicated with Quentin and said, "Hey, maybe we can sit down and talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that we're doing. You know, it's been a while. Let's catch up." So we sit down with Quentin. Like, look, Quentin, here's a portfolio. You know, what do you think? Just tell us, you know, what you think. You know, he was so modest. He was nice. He looked at it. He was like, yeah, that's, you know, that's pretty good, guys. You know, it's, those are good stories. I think you guys have done your homework, um, good stuff. And then let me share you my portfolio. So he showed a list of companies. We had no idea what those companies were. We were like, Quentin, what is this? Why are you buying all this? And, um, you know, and then obviously there are, are views about where we are in the cycle. Uh, immediately, you know, we're like, well, let's go up on the risk curve. You know, it, it, this is the time to do it. If there's any other time to do it, it's now. And so uh, we begin to dive in in the industry. We did a, a, this partnership with him, and that's really where everything began. Um, so um, uh, it's a uh, it's a very it's a, let me let me give you another thought. I, I would say also the management teams. Um, I, I, we see a lot of uh, again a lot of good assets, very great assets, and you know sometimes you're buying a company already have resources. Um, so you have some, you know, some some downside, downside capped um, uh, on that story because you you know there is something in there. Um, but the management team is terrible. You know, making sure that the promises that they they said a few years ago were delivered, and if they were not delivered, why? You know, you can look for those. You know, just watch interviews of those those CEOs from two years ago, um, and you know, you you got to ask them, put them on the spot. Why why did you not follow up with that? Um, and, you know, the issue as well, Grant, is that a lot of those companies, uh, what they do is they're very conservative right now, given where we are. And, um, you know, we've been through a very uh, tough uh, few years or long years of, of a bear market in the mining space. So what they do is they raise capital, not enough to do an aggressive exploration, hoping to hit a few intercepts and then go back to the market at a higher valuation. Where, what they should be doing instead, because they're diluting over time, is to big, do a bigger dilution um, uh, process and then and then really go aggressive. And 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 if you you know if you really find something, uh, you can continue to follow up with no need for for further capital raise. And and now you are you know ten times higher in valuation. Um, and now you're you know you're diluting at a much better position. And so uh, I think that's uh, that's really one of the strategies that we've been trying to pursue. You see this in the entire industry, by the way. This happens all the time. They raise a tiny bit of money. They go there, drill, you know, poke up a few, a few holes, don't find anything or find one or two. The company goes up 10, 15%. They, they announce they're going to do a capital raise. Companies down 20%. It's, you know, and they go, don't go anywhere. So um, I think that's, that's been one of the, the, the big changes we've been trying to uh, accomplish is to be aggressive on, on projects that we believe. So when we believe in something, we put enough capital, they have enough capital to go into a, a, for, for, a, for some time and we make sure the capital is being spent right. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, we'll, we'll probably discontinue our investment in general. So uh, it's, uh, it's a long-term process, but uh, I think uh, things have been working out well and we want to keep it that way and continue to be building our reputation in space. Well, Toby, you and Kevin have built a, a tremendously strong reputation in an incredibly short period of time through the, the quality of your work, and, and I commend you both for that. And, and, look, and, and my thanks to you for, for giving up all this time on a Friday afternoon when I'm sure you've got 
things you'd much rather be doing. But look, before we wrap up, just let people know a little bit more about how they can find out more about what you're doing and how they can follow you because um, you, I've found you you both to be tremendous resources for me in, in, in my own personal kind of education. And uh, and and I think there'll be people out there listening to this that want to find out a lot more about, about you, about Kevin, and about Crescat in general. Well, thanks for the opportunity to sharing uh, some of uh, what we do, first of all. Uh, you can find our website, crescat.net. Um, we were very active on Twitter, social media in general. Uh, I try to post macro charts almost daily if I have the time. Um, you know, we, we publish letters, uh, very in-depth letters with a lot of charts and ideas and how we're implementing those in our portfolio. Um, and so we have also uh, weekly presentations, one starting uh, very soon here, uh, live presentations where uh, we discuss not only the macro environment, but a little bit about, um, you know, our, we disclose one of the companies that we got involved. And we discuss not only that, but the geological uh, uh, thesis behind some of those companies and some of those involvements with the Crescat side. Um, and so I suggest you all to just look for that. It's just type Crescat Capital on, on uh, YouTube and you'll find it or on, my, on my Twitter as well. Um, well, thank you very much for having me again. Great. I must say I'm a fan of your work. Um, I, I was I always uh, listen to your interviews. I think you were the master of interviews in the space. I think you're um, you're just a, a very intelligent and, and you, you put you, you, you make some very intelligent questions and I really enjoy uh, listening to your interviews and it's a pleasure to be part of this as well. So I uh, just wanted to say my gratitude to your work as well. Well, Tammy, that's that's incredibly kind. That's that's very kind of you to say, and incredibly gracious of you. Thank you. Well, um, again, my thanks to you, and um, hopefully we get to cross paths in person, and we can sit and talk gold stocks because I, I love doing that, and I love doing it even more with people that really know what they're talking about. Let's do it. It's uh, it would be a pleasure. All right, take care of yourself. Thanks again. Well, I have to say that was absolutely fascinating. You know, the, the precious metal space is tricky enough to navigate, but when you decide that the junior miners and the early stage exploration companies is going to be your playground, you had better know what you're doing. Um, through their partnership with Quinton Hennig, Tavi and Kevin have given themselves, I think, a huge head start over many trying to navigate the storm and drang of the mining sector. It's, it's quite the place to find yourself. There was so much valuable information in that conversation um, that I am more than willing to bet you'll be listening to it multiple times. I'll include as many of the charts referenced as I can in the transcript as I think they will add plenty to the discussion. So all that remains is for me to thank you for listening and I guess to rattle off a few Twitter handles for you. Uh, Tavi can be found at Tavi Costa, T-A-V-I-C-O-S-T-A. His partner, Kevin Smith, is at Crescat Kevin. And the company Twitter handle, I have one of those two, is Crescat underscore capital. And lastly, their website again is Crescat.net. That's it for me for now. I will see you again next time. Thanks so much again for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.